Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, is where I would like to direct your attention this Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, and uh, I, we're going to read in a moment from verse 15 through the end of the chapter, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 through 29. While you're turning there, I hope that you saw the insert in the bulletin about the special Thanksgiving offering that we're going to take during the month of November to support some of the missions of our missionaries. Um, Our outreach partners, a couple of them are going on overseas trips in January, and we would like to support some of them. So I hope you'll give to that during the month of November. You can designate for that. Also, I just want to let you know that on December... Am I going in and out? My microphone, is it working or not? I'm good? Okay. December 8th uh, is going to be a congregational meeting. On December 8th will be a momentous day for our congregation. We're going to vote on our building project on that day. You'll get a letter about it. You'll get more information about it. But that is coming up on Sunday, December 8th. So um, you'll want to know about that and pray about that. Set aside time. Make sure you'll be here. We'll meet in the early afternoon uh, as we usually do on these Sunday meetings. So that'll be a great day for us. Now, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who ever does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your own servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, and here's a verse that is guaranteed to be a favorite of many. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. (laughs) We'll close in prayer. This verse 29... Verse 29, may God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Right, here we go. Verse 29, this only have I found... God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Uh, because we're reading, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> because we're reading uh, Ecclesiastes, this book of meditations on life, we've been wrestling with some, prom- some profound questions, questions that all of us ask at times. Not all the time, we're too busy for that, but every now and then, at particular turning points, we ask these very important questions. 
in some way, uh, this passage from Ecclesiastes 7 is part two of where we started last week. That key question that we spent time thinking about, how do you live by faith in a chaotic world that is ruled by a sovereign God? What does it look like to walk by faith in a chaotic world ruled by a sovereign God? And we, when we come to verse 15 of chapter 7, we have a specific piece of that question And this is about the suffering of righteous people. That mystery, this thing that the teacher has seen, I've seen the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. How how can it be? How can it be that righteous people who would live righteously would be cut off and wicked people would live a long, healthy time? How, How can that be? That doesn't make sense. We sometimes ask the question, Uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Let's spend some time this morning with the teacher as he thinks about it. He's going to instruct his students on how to handle this puzzle. And I want to show you three things this morning from the text. First, we're going to look at the limits of wisdom. Then secondly, we're going to talk about uh, the attempts we make to deal with this problem. And then third, we're going to talk about the central truth that we focus on when we think about this issue. So we'll start with the limits of wisdom. The Bible commends wisdom. It speaks about searching for it and treasuring it. But wisdom itself has limitations. When wisdom fails, there's some things that we try to do to, to fix life, to control life, to make up for it. And that's what we're going to talk about secondly when we get there in just a minute. All those efforts that we make to fix life that we don't understand. And then there is this truth in this passage that we need to focus on and think about, weigh it in our minds. It's kind of the roadmap for this morning. Let's talk first of all, though, about the limits of wisdom. The limits of wisdom. We've got to start with the target in, uh, we have to target in on the problem that he has. Why do good things happen? uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? How can it be that righteous people die young and wicked people sometimes live long, happy, healthy lives? Now, I know some of you are already thinking about R.C. Sproul's response to that. You already know what he said. Somebody asked him that question once. uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. Sproul said, I'm not sure. I don't know any good people. Which is a good answer. It's a useful answer. It's an answer that we're going to come back to in a little bit. But it's not an answer actually that the teacher lets us give. Because he thinks he does know some good people. I mean, look what verse 15 says. I've seen the righteous perishing in their righteousness. They they were legitimately righteous. And I have seen people perishing in their righteousness. The teacher isn't thinking about someone who just appears to be righteous. The teacher isn't thinking about some sort of hypocrite. He's not thinking about someone who lived a righteous life and then made a terrible turn and suffered for it. No, he's thinking about people who are genuinely righteous and they died young or they suffered grievously. Can you think of any examples of that? Probably you can. Uh, My mind actually goes back in this context a few generations to a young man by the name of William Borden. Do you know William Borden? Some of you know his story. Uh, William Borden grew up in Chicago, and some people think that he was a member of the Borden Dairy family, the condensed milk, sweetened condensed milk, uh, that the Borden 
family. No, uh, actually, he, he grew up wealthy, but his family money came from silver mining. Well, uh, in 1894, uh, when he was seven years old, his mother took him to Moody Church, and he heard the gospel from R.A. Torrey, and he believed. He started following Christ seriously. He graduated from the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, when he was 16. Then he went to Yale University and then to Princeton Seminary because when he was a a teenager, he had decided he was going to be an overseas missionary. He wanted to be a foreign missionary. Uh, By all accounts, William Borden was an exemplary young man. He was a natural leader. He was a gifted communicator. He was a bright, he was a godly young man. In fact, uh, when he graduated from seminary, they appointed him to be one of the directors of Moody Bible Institute. He led the New York Bible Institute for uh, a couple of years there. And then in 1912, he left the United States because he was going to go to China, the western part of China, to share the gospel with the Uyghur Muslims in the western part of China. Now, the Uyghur Muslims have been in the news recently. Uh, They are the people group that the Chinese government is persecuting uh, mercilessly. Um, Concentration camps. There are Nazi-style concentration camps in western China filled with Uyghur Muslims. Well, William Borden in 1912 left the United States because he was going to go share the gospel with these people. He stopped in Cairo, Egypt on the way because he wanted to learn to speak Arabic. In fact, he wanted to learn the particular type of Arabic that is in the Quran so that he could go and share the gospel effectively with the Uyghur Muslims. But when he was in Cairo, he uh, contracted cerebral meningitis and died in three weeks at age 25. So uh, there's a well-known story about him. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but supposedly when his mother found his Bible, uh, he, he, she found in it three things that he had written on three different occasions on the flyleaf of his Bible. Um, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I don't know if that's true or not. It, it, it's, um, we've never seen the Bible that he wrote this in. Nobody has a copy of it. Uh, it's a great motto. If it's not true about him, it should be because it reflects his life. No reserve, no retreat, no regret. The teacher says, I've seen this happen. I have seen this happen. I have seen the righteous perishing in their righteousness. What possible use is there in the death of William Borden? I I know people have been inspired by his death, but don't you think they could have been equally inspired by his life and by the dozens of Uyghur churches that he might have planted if he had moved successfully and served out a lifetime of ministry there in western China? Couldn't that have brought glory to God and inspired people to go, right? What the teacher is writing about doesn't make sense to us. It seems like a terrible waste And it seems to contradict some of the promises that are in the Bible. I wrote some of them down. Look with me. The teacher would have been thinking about them. Exodus 20.12, the Apostle Paul says this is the first promise that God gave with a promise. Sorry, the first commandment God gave with a promise. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 5.33, walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Or Proverbs 3, 1-2, to 
My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Now, we're sophisticated people. We're sophisticated readers of the Bible. We're sophisticated enough to know that, that, that um, though these are general promises, there are specific exceptions, but there is within us also this innate sense of justice, right? That what the teacher is writing about, the righteous perishing and their righteousness and the wicked living long and their wickedness, it just doesn't seem right. It's right that people who honor their parents or people who walk in obedience to God's commands should live long, happy, peaceful lives. We have this innate sense that this is what is right and good and fair. And the Bible tells us about people who have struggled with this. Look at Psalm seventy-three, twelve. His sense of justice is being overturned. This, verse 12 says, This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Now again, I know I hear objections in the room. I hear them. I can hear what you're thinking. Don't you know that we human beings are capable of astounding self-deception? Yes. Somewhere... Somewhere in the world, there's an axe murderer who got a flat tire this week. He was driving on the highway, he got a flat tire, he rumbled off to the side of the road, and he got out of his car and looked into the heavens and he said, God, why? It's been three days since I axe murdered anyone. Why are you doing this to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, there is somebody, that's happened somewhere on the planet. We human beings are capable of you're really good at deluding yourself about what you deserve and what you don't deserve. C.S. Lewis said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. Teacher asks an honest question. What do we do about this apparent injustice? It's a serious question. It's a question that has driven people from the faith. There are those who see suffering in this world or experience suffering in this world and they conclude that God is not worthy of their faith and he is not worthy of following, so they turn from him. So the teacher, what's he going to do? He's going to figure it out. He is going to figure it out. He writes about this in verse 23. Look what it says. All this I tested by wisdom... I am determined to be wise, he says. Then uh, verse 25, So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. He's going to figure it out. Look at the verbs involved in this sentence. I was determined to do this. I, I tested it. Verse 25, I turned my mind. I'm going to understand. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to search out. I'm going to figure this out. Um, he's he's working at this. Verse 27 talks about this as a math problem. Look, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another, he's thinking, he's thinking, he's working on this. How how can it be that the righteous die in their righteousness, but the wicked live long in their wickedness? He's really thinking. Now, if this were a movie, if you were to take Ecclesiastes and you were going to make it into a movie, this would be the point in time in which you would put the thought montage. 
You ever seen a sports movie? Some of you have. You know what always happens in the sports movies is there's the training montage. So the, the movie opens and our intrepid hero, or the intrepid team, realizes that they're going to uh, uh, be playing against the uh, New England Brutes or something, some horrible team. They're going to play against them. And, and they've got to train. The coach says, the only way you're going to beat them is you've got to train hard. You've got to train harder than you've ever trained in your whole life. So the music starts and you see them training. Dun, 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 and they train, right? They, you see the team running and running and sweating and you see them throwing and catching and you see them, see them exercising so hard and they're, they're doing their, their, their working out training montage, right? Well, if Ecclesiastes were a movie, this would be the thinking montage, which is not nearly as interesting. You know, the teacher, you just see him, he's thinking, ah. And you see him, you see him climbing mountains to talk to sages and interviewing wise people. And you see him in his study writing and crump, no, that doesn't work. And he's thinking, he's thinking, right? I can't figure this out. The thinking montage is going on in these verses. He worked at this. And what did he discover? Verse 24. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? He he can't figure it out. The truth is out there somewhere, but it's so far away, it's at the horizon. And and every step I take, I get a little closer, but but it gets further away. It's too far for me to figure out. Or it's profound, that's the word deep. The solution is somewhere, but it's so deep, I can't, I can't dig down to get it. I can't solve this problem. I can't figure it out. Let's pause and think about this for a, for a minute here. The, the teacher is pondering what we sometimes call the problem of evil. How does evil exist in the world ruled by a powerful and good God? Where does evil come from? Why does God allow it? And people of faith have been wrestling with this for hundreds of years. Some of them are gifted and intelligent people, and they talk about this a lot. Uh, Christians at times can give simplistic answers. We, we are guilty of giving simplistic, simplistic answers. But there are very smart followers of Jesus who have wrestled with this. Um, if you ever watch, if you're ever interested in doing so, watch uh, Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias or Tim Keller or Albert Moeller do a question and answer session on a college campus. Inevitably, this question will come up. Inevitably, they will talk about it. And they, they, those men will talk about evil uh, wisely and compassionately, but not comprehensively. Because... We can't talk about this comprehend. We cannot figure this out completely. Sometimes what Ravi Zacharias and Tim Keller and Albert Moeller do, what they do is sometimes is they just say, well, I hear what you're saying, but that's actually not what Christians believe, and that's not what Christians believe, and we don't believe that either, and you shouldn't believe this because that won't work, and you shouldn't believe that because this doesn't work either. They're talking around this problem in the Bible. Uh, Scripture borders our thinking when it comes to this problem that the teacher is, is thinking. So, for example, the, the teacher tells us, we don't understand it right now, but someday we will in the age to come. I was thinking this week about that song, By and By. Do you remember that old gospel song? It's a simple song. The chorus goes like this. 
By and by, when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we will tell the story of how we've overcome and we'll understand it better by and by. Not in this age, but in the age to come, the picture will get clearer. The Bible borders are thinking by telling us that in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that is to come in that day, these afflictions that we have are light and momentary. That seems strange because I know some of your troubles and they don't seem light and momentary. But they're light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is coming. The Bible talks to us about the mercies of God and the goodness of God and the comfort of God. He's near the brokenhearted. The Bible talks about the suffering of the Lord Jesus himself, God's own son. The Bible talks to us about examples of people who have suffered and God has used their suffering for his purposes. Think about Joseph. Remember, Joseph sold into slavery, thrown into prison. Uh, and, And Joseph says to his brothers at the end of Genesis, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. If God can do that in Joseph's life, he can do it in your life too. All these boundaries that we have around this problem that the teacher is raising, uh, they offer us comfort and they offer us hope and they offer us encouragement, but not explanations. Not explanations in specific terms with specific people. We just don't know. We just don't understand. We can't put the whole story together the way that we want to. It's just too much sorrow, too much grief. Wisdom is limited It's limited to help us figure this out. This is the first of uh, a few places in the book of Ecclesiastes where we're going to talk about the limitations of wisdom. Well, then maybe you say, teacher, let's just give up. All right, let's not even try. If, if, If wisdom doesn't work, let's just stop. And he's, no, 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 no. Look at verse 19. Don't give up on wisdom, even though it's limited. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Wisdom is better than political power. It's better than military might. Don't give up on it, but it's limited. And, and actually, wisdom has other problems. Another problem with how we wield wisdom. Verse 20, there's no one on earth who's righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Then he gives an example. He gives an example of the fact that, that, we're, that no one is righteous. In verses 21 and 22, don't pay attention to every word that people say or you may hear your servant cursing you. So imagine this conversation. Teacher, somebody in the teacher's class says, Teacher, I don't understand why righteous people die sooner than I think they should. And the teacher says, I've thought about that a lot. And, and my wisdom fails me to figure that out. The student says, but isn't wisdom good? I mean, isn't wisdom useful? And the teacher says, yes. Yes, wisdom is really good. But it's limited. It's partially limited by the fact that we're all tainted by sin as human beings. Not me, teacher. I'm a good person. Really? Have you ever spoken an unkind word about someone? Have you ever said something about a person that if, if they were in the room to have heard you say it, you would be ashamed, embarrassed? I have. Wisdom is very good, but it is limited. It cannot answer all of life's questions, especially the question about sometimes uh, righteous people die early or forgotten or poor or lonely and why wicked people live 
long, healthy, happy lives sometimes. It doesn't seem right. The teacher says, I don't understand it. Now, that does not mean that we don't try to adapt to this puzzling world, that we don't try to figure this out or at least to master the problem. Now I want to look here at what the teacher says about this, about how we respond to this, how we, here we're going to move on to point two, the attempts we make to deal with this problem. I'm not very good at alliteration, but these all actually start with the letter R. Isn't that impressive? This is the pirate portion of the sermon, R. Here we go. How do we do, that was not even worth saying, I know, but we're going to move on. So how do we face this reality of bad things happening to good people? What do we try to do? Uh, here's some ways we respond. Number one, righteousness. Righteousness. Now, normally righteousness in the Bible, almost always righteousness in the Bible, is a good thing. But look at this warning here in verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? What's he talking about? One commentator thinks that the teacher here has been influenced by Greek philosophy. And let's just be moderate. We should be moderate in everything. You should be moderate in righteousness and moderate in in wickedness. That's not how the Bible talks. Jesus said you should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pursue it. Find people to befriend who will uh, fight for righteousness with you. The teacher here is warning us about being over-righteous. Sidney Gradonis prefers the term super-righteous. Super-righteousness is the sort of righteousness that you pursue in order to protect yourself from harm. It's fed by the belief that if I'm a good enough person, then God owes me a good life. God will keep me safe. I'll do my part I'll be good, and then God will be good to me. I won't have any troubles if I'm good enough, as if my righteousness is going to protect me from trouble in this world. I'll do my, my part, God will do his, and then I'll be happy and safe. Um, we talk about, we talk like this sometimes without even realizing it. It's easy to fall into this pattern. I was thinking um, this morning about the advice that sometimes well-meaning followers of Jesus give to single people. Somebody should write a book. Bad things, stupid things Christians say to single people. All right? Write the book. So um, here's one of them. You just need to learn to be content. And when you're content, God will bring the right guy or the right girl into your life. As if a spouse is a reward for being content. Right? Just be content, and then God will give you, give you a spouse that you want. Right? Uh, the disciples in Jesus' day had, had seemed to think like this. If I'm just good enough, then God will keep me safe. Or, uh, good people get good things that happen to them. Uh, there's a scene in John chapter 9 where Jesus, they meet a blind man, and um, the disciples say to him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's an awesomely terrible question. It's silly because they're asking Jesus about the prenatal sins of this baby. He was born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? And then as if Jesus is going to start talking to them about how in the womb he was selling drugs and jacking cars, and that's why he was born blind. He was a terrible sinner in the womb. (laughs) God punished him by making him be born blind. This is their thinking. Do bad, get a bad life. Be good, get a good life. 
The masters of this, of course, in the Bible were the Pharisees. And they were, by and large, miserable people. Ray read from Matthew 6 about all of their hypocrisy when they would pray, these Pharisees. They're going to be really righteous, and you're going to be able to see their righteousness because they're going to make it known to you. They are the super righteous people. They were really good at keeping little rules. They tied their spices. They had a long list of practices to make sure they never worked on the Sabbath. They fasted and fasted and fasted because they were righteous, because God rewards righteousness with easy lives. I understand this temptation. It shows up in our parenting circles sometimes. If you parent properly, if you do it right, if you give your child the right schooling, if you discipline them correctly, if you read the Bible as a family in the right way at the right time, then your kids will be okay and they won't rebel. There's a deep vein of that that has run through our church before. Here's this recipe. Follow this parenting recipe and your kids will be good. And God will reward you for your diligent parenting with faithful children. Live with that philosophy and you will destroy yourself, the teacher says. How? Well, it's likely that your zeal to earn God's favor will make you miserable. You'll, you'll ignore all kinds of God's good gifts because you're trying to be more holy than God is. You know, I know that God gave that to us for a blessing, but I'm going to avoid it because I'm trying to be really holy because I don't want God, I want, I want a good life, and if I'm good enough, then God will give me a good life. So I'll just be a little, little holier than God. And you'll inevitably be disappointed. You'll destroy yourself because you'll be miserable and you'll, 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 you'll be uh, disappointed because you can't possibly be good enough to get, you, to get God to owe you anything. You don't have that power. Righteousness is not the way to reign in the mysteries of, God, of, of life. Here's another option. Also starts with R, our second R word. Another option. If righteousness, let's not try righteousness, let's try rebellion. Rebellion. If there's no guarantees, then what's the point of pursuing righteousness at all? Why try to be good if there's no guarantees of goodness? Let's cut loose and enjoy ourselves. And the teacher says, verse 17, do not be over wicked. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? This isn't the answer. There are real consequences for your choices. Remember, Proverbs is the rule. Ecclesiastes is the exception. Exceptions exist, but they're not everything. So don't run away from God. Instead, he says in this passage, fear him, verse 18. Fear God. Take both. What's the both that he's talking about here? Um, taking the one, grasping both, and then my footnote in my, in my translation of verse 18 says, whoever fears God will follow them both. What's the both he's talking about? Two things. Fear God, that is pursue godly wisdom and receive God's good gifts. Do both. Pursue God. Be serious about following God and, and really serious about enjoying God's good gifts. Do both of those don't be a miserable rule follower who turns from the good gifts that God has given. But don't think that self-control with those good gifts is automatically a killjoy. Fear God and take from His hand gladly what He gives. So neither righteousness nor rebellion is the way to walk in this mysterious life. Now, 
I have a third proposal, another way that I think the teacher is hinting at how we try to deal with the sometimes mysterious nature of life. Uh, Let me give you the R word, and then I'll try to explain it, because I'm not sure about this. Uh, The third word is romance. Romance. I'm not sure about this. Follow me here. Follow me. Um, We're going to look at verse 26. Remember in verses 23 and 24, he's been wrestling with this. I'm trying to figure out the mysteries of life. I can't, I can't figure out why, good things, uh, by, why bad things sometimes happen to good people. I can't figure this out. He really studied. He really thought about it. And then in verse 26, here's his conclusion. After all that thinking, I find more bitter than death the woman who's a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. And I read that and I think, dude, how did you get from point A to point B? How did you go from talking about the mysteries of life to your bad relationships? I don't understand the connection that you're drawing here. The challenges continue here. Verse 28, I read it. I pointed it out when I read it. While I was still searching but not finding, I, 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 did not, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Where are you looking for these women, man? No wonder you're having relationship problems, right? Uh, hmm. Now follow me for a minute. I'm not sure about this. This is something that's completely possible. It is completely possible that the teacher here in verse 26 is revisiting a teaching technique he used in the book of Proverbs. So remember the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes were both written for um, a young men, training manuals for young men in the royal courts of Israel. Uh, this, these are the, the young men who are going to be leaders in the nation. So we have Proverbs and we have Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Proverbs in chapters 5 and chapter 7 and then in chapter 31, the author of Proverbs talks about wisdom and folly as if they were women. In Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7, folly, foolishness, is depicted as a foolish woman. And, and he describes in detail what folly looks like. In Proverbs 31, he gives the counterpoint, here's what wisdom looks like. So um, take wisdom, dress it up in human flesh as a young woman, and this is what she will look like. It's a teaching technique that the author of Proverbs uses. Maybe the author of Ecclesiastes is going back to that. Uh, look uh, with me at it at in Proverbs 5, all right? Proverbs 5, 3. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of thee, here she is, foolish, adulterous woman, drip honey, and her speech is smoother than the oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. And then he describes on and on and on and on what this foolish woman is like. Now, if Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were written for young women, perhaps it would be talking about Mr. Folly and Mr. Wisdom. But here in these books for young men, we have Miss Folly and Miss, actually in Proverbs 31, Mrs. Wisdom. That's possible. Um, maybe that's what the teacher's doing here in Ecclesiastes. Beware of foolishness. That's what he's. Beware of foolishness. The woman who represents foolishness is a snare. Or I wonder. I wonder if he's. This is another option. If he's warning us about one of the ways that we try to solve the problems of life is through romance. Find that perfect partner. 
Find the man of your dreams. Find the woman of your dreams. If I can just find the right one, then all of my problems will be solved. He will satisfy all of my desires and meet all of my needs. If I just meet them, then then, uh, that person, then our romance will lead to unending joy and happiness. Tim Keller calls this apocalyptic romance. And it's the plot of every romantic comedy movie that has ever been made. Is, Is it possible this is what the teacher has in mind? can't figure this out. I can't figure this out. Don't look for the answer in a relationship. Be careful. Hmm. Can we go one step further? This might be a step too far for some of you. Think about this. Remember that this book is associated with Solomon and Solomon married very poorly. Book of Kings talks about how his his wives that he married poorly uh, led him away from God. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is a thousand. And he writes here about not finding one wise woman among a group of a thousand. Is that too far? Maybe. Maybe. How does he go from, I tried to understand life, I really thought about it. Oh, by the way, there's a sort of woman that you should avoid who's a snare. She's a real trap. She'll lock you up. How does he do that? Again, because I think we sometimes try to solve the mysteries of life by finding Mr. Right or Miss Right. And Solomon says it's not going to work. It is not going to work. He could say this in a class of young men, this classroom, uh, or a classroom of young women. Either way. This This passage might help you, might encourage you, in shaping your expectations of when you get married, what sort of spouse should you seek or what sort of spouse should you be? Your life partner is not meant to be the person who rescues you. Instead, he or she is to be the life partner who helps you endure suffering in this mysterious broken world. We're not very wise when it comes to our hunt for a spouse. Uh, Claire is um, a junior in high school. She works with a young man who is also a junior in high school. They're friends. They're just friends. But one of the things that Claire admires about this young man is his work ethic. He knows how to work hard. When she shows up at work and he's there, she knows he's going to work hard. He's going to do his responsibilities. He's going to be He's a hard-working young man. So one day, uh, Claire was sitting around with her lacrosse teammates after a game, and, and these teenage girls were talking. And what do sometimes teenage girls talk about when they get in groups? They were talking about teenage boys. And they were making a list of boys in the junior class that they considered cute. All right? This young man's name came up in their discussion, and Claire wanted to throw her friend a bone. So she said to this group, You know, I work with him, and he is a really hard worker. And Claire said to me later, she said, not one of them was impressed at all. (laughs) I said, do you know why they weren't impressed at all? Because teenage girls, when talking about teenage boys, are foolish. In fact, the only thing that is more foolish than a conversation among teenage girls about teenage boys, the only thing in the whole world more foolish than that is a conversation between teenage boys about teenage girls. And Disney has taught us, right? Someday my prince will come and he will not have calluses on his hands. Hmm. 
I said to Claire, I said, they don't think it matters now, but very soon that will matter very highly to them. They won't care in six years if he looks like Quasimodo as long as he works hard. <laughs> right? We're, we're not very good at this. So the teacher comes along. Your spouse is not to meant to be a rescuer, but a co-sufferer. I, there are seasons of your life, I know there are seasons in your life, when your spouse may be the cause of great suffering to you. But God intends your spouse to be your co-sufferer. His will be the hand that you reach out for in the doctor's office when the diagnosis comes. She will be the one who's standing next to you over that open grave. That face will be the one sitting across from you when there's very little food on the table and not much income. Maybe the teacher wants you to think about how you seek a spouse and how you serve the spouse you have. He is not anti-marriage. In chapter 9, he's going to talk about loving your wife and living a good life in this world, this often mysterious world. But choose well, the teacher says, because your wife, your husband, is not going to rescue you from the mysteries of life. In fact, they are meant by God to help you endure the mysteries of life, to help you carry forward and walk through this pilgrim journey that we're on. There's a lot of ways to deal with when bad things happen to good people. Um, righteousness, rebellion, and romance, they're not good ways of dealing with them. Now there's one more element in the text. We need to walk through it quickly. This is the central truth that uh, we focus on when it comes to bad things and good people. At the heart of human suffering, he says, is a truth that you have to face the sinfulness of human beings. This is not the way that God made the world. This is what we have done in the world. Look at verse 29. This only have I found... Here's here's really the conclusion of all the thinking and all the working and all the investigating and all the, the understanding that he's done. This only, verse 29, have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Or back to verse 20. Indeed, there's no one on earth who's righteous. There's no one who does what is right and never sins. Now notice how comprehensive verse 29 is. Michael Eaton wrote about this in one of his commentaries on Ecclesiastes. Every word here matters in that second phrase. It says, God created mankind upright, but they, they, all of us, it's comprehensive. All of us in this room, they have gone, they have gone in search of. This is a deliberate act. This is not something that we fell into. This is something that is deliberate. All of us have gone in search of many, many. A human evil takes many, many forms. It's a multi-form, terrible thing. Many schemes. There's a twistedness to it. The word scheme here has has to do with a perversion, this searching. We're broken and we have lived out this brokenness. When the Bible speaks about humanity, it has this twin message. We are made in God's image and worthy of dignity and honor, and we are sinful. Both of those things are true. And together they explain so much of the wonder and the horror of being human. 
Romans 8 says that our brokenness is written in nature itself. Why does the earth sometimes shake and bring buildings down? Why do volcanoes explode and incinerate towns? Why do cells in your body grow into tumors that settle into your organs? Because our rebellion is written into nature itself. In this uh, section of Ecclesiastes, the teacher is writing about a condition that we cannot understand whose source is a problem that we cannot solve on our own. Verse 20 is interesting. It's one of the few verses, if not the only one, from Ecclesiastes that we're sure is quoted in the New Testament. Um, Paul borrowed from this chapter when he wrote the book of Romans. You remember Paul's train of thought in the book of Romans. He starts out the first couple of chapters, all of us, all human beings are broken by sin. And he says, no one on earth is righteous. No one. This is his conclusion. If you want to argue with him about it, remember what the teacher said in verse 22. You've cursed people, haven't you? Human beings have a problem they cannot solve. But God has solved it for us. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that God presented his own son as a sacrifice for our sins. God sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world. He came to be our sin bearer, to suffer the consequences of our sin. Remember R.C. Sproul, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know, I haven't met any good people. Actually, he says, there's only been one time in all of human history that a bad thing, a truly bad thing has happened to a truly good person, and it was on the cross when the Lord Jesus suffered for our sake. Um, And in his name... And to all who will receive it, God gives life and forgiveness. It's the central message of the Bible. It's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. That good news about Jesus does not itself answer in full all of the questions that the teacher asks. But it does provide us with hope. Look at what God has done for us. For the sake of love through his son, if you see that and if you understand it, you will realize that you can, in this world full of mysterious suffering, you'll realize that you can wait. You can be patient. You you can trust him for the rest. You'll have questions. You'll have questions. They will still haunt you at times, but you can wait for the answers God is trustworthy enough for you to wait. There was a game show on television a number of years ago. I can't even remember the the name of the show. I remember seeing clips of it. And basically what they was set set, uh, three contestants in front of a big screen. And on the big screen would be a picture, and the picture would be covered with tiles. And in the course of a number of seconds, they would take those tiles off. The, the tiles would disappear so you could see portions of the picture. And, and when you recognize what the picture was, you ring in, you press your buzzer. I, I know, I know what that is. I know what that is. And then you get the points. Here's the sovereign plan of God. Let's have him put it out on a screen before us. The sovereign plan of God. You can't see the whole thing. If you could see the whole thing, you wouldn't understand it anyway. And it's covered with tiles. And and God has uncovered the tiles about the Lord Jesus. Can't see everything, but you can see his son, and you can see what his son has done for us. And it's enough for us to believe. Ring in, ring in. I can't see everything, but I believe. 
I don't have the whole picture, but what I have is enough for me to trust him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and again, we are thankful to you for these questions that the teacher asks and his honesty in dealing uh, with them before us. Lord, I'm grateful to you that you, knowing how we would struggle in this broken world, gave us this man's ponderings. You, you, You included in your book that is from you for us to read and for us to learn from all of these questions, you knew how we would struggle with them. I pray that you, according to your kindness, would help us to struggle with them by faith. I pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus to encourage one another to ask these questions and struggle with these questions by faith, looking unto you. We confess, Lord, that we have not seen everything, but we rejoice this morning that you have given us the Lord Jesus. Remind us, even again as we come to the table this morning, that for us Christ is enough. In that great day when the Lord Jesus returns, we'll be with you and you will be uncovering the mysteries of your grace and your wisdom forever and ever. That will be a great moment. In the meantime, help us to trust in you wholly. Uh, Sometimes weakly we do it, but truly, truly help us to trust you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.